I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, dance music and the making of modern Britain with Ed Gillett and his new book, Party Lines. Ed Gillett is a journalist and filmmaker based in South London who has written for The Guardian, Freeze, DJ Mag, The Quietus and Navarra Media. His film and TV credits include Jeremy Deller's acclaimed rave documentary, Everybody in the Place, An Incomplete History of Britain, 1984-1992, for BBC Four, and Fall to the Floor, Channel 4's award-winning music and factual strand. And today we're going to be talking about Ed's debut book, which is Party Lines, Dance Music and the Making of Modern Britain. Ed, welcome to Little Atoms. Thanks very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Tell us, first of all, then, I guess, what inspired this book? Sure. So I guess there are three things that kind of inspired it in a sort of personal and biographical sense. Um, I've always been a, a deep lover of music in general and dance music in particular. I've been going out dancing for, you know, as long as I can remember, right from my sort of mid-teens. It's always been a space of real kind of communion and meaning for me and a form of culture that I've always had a very, very deep affinity for. The other thing that's always really interested me is the way that culture functions politically. I've been parallel to having been a journalist for a few years. Uh, my earlier career was spent in the charity sector, specifically um, in the human rights sector, generally in kind of support roles, operations and project management or communications, rather than being a high-powered legal legal activist or, or human rights lawyer myself. But um. Yeah, I've worked in close proximity to a lot of really influential and inspiring uh, legal and political campaigners. And I've always taken a keen interest in those kind of activist currents and political disputes cutting across uh, British and global kind of politics. And then the third kind of strand is one that was embedded in me from a very young age. Both my dad, his dad, and various generations of Gillets going back at least a couple of hundred years have all worked in some form or other in kind of urban space and property. So whenever I'd be taken out into the city, my dad or my granddad would tell me who built that building there, who occupies it now, who occupied it previously, what it was once used for, what it's being converted into. They, they had all this sort of knowledge at their fingertips. So when, as a you know, 17, 18 year old, I started going out raving, all of those kind of collided for me. I would go to Fabric and it would be immediately apparent that, okay, this is a cellar next to Smithfield Meat Market. That sort of history of urban space and, and inheritance 
uh, was really, really clear to me. And so from those those kind of late teen years, I guess those sort of combinations of the socio-political, the sonic and the spatial have always been really key kind of touchstones for me. Um, in terms of the book more specifically, I guess the inspiration came from three different sources as well, actually. Um, my general career as a writer has been founded on those those kind of three underlying interests. So I've written about the kind of intersections between physical space, politics, from the from the national to the local, and the role that culture plays in that. So I've written stories about venue closures and the reasons behind that, from political decision-making to gentrification. Uh, I've written about conflicts between local communities, festival promoters, and um, local councils over the use of uh, local green space to run day-long city centre festivals. I've written about the support available to artists, venues, and promoters during COVID. So that's been kind of my wheelhouse as a writer, generally sort of looking at those issues in the present day rather than historically. And the sort of second part of the puzzle came with a film that you mentioned that I made for Freeze, directed by Jeremy Della, where I was brought in to help bring a sort of music journalist angle to it. So specifically to help out finding archive materials. The film is is based around a presentation that Jeremy gives to an um, A-level politics class in 2018 um, using archive video footage of, of raves and of political disputes. So that was my sort of primary role. But because it played such a huge part in the story, I also helped to shape the narrative. And in doing that, in, in undertaking that project, what became really, really clear to me was that the sort of things that I, were writing about, I was writing about in the present day all had their roots in um, the conflicts of my sort of earliest childhood. When we first started working on the film, the first thing we did was went around to Jeremy's flat for a meeting with me and the producers and him. Um, and he loaded up to YouTube windows and in one he had um he turned the volume down and had uh, footage of the police charging on horseback into the striking miners at Orgreave and in the other window he had the audio from What Time Is Love by the KLF playing and it immediately sort of clicked that of course how else what other context could this foreboding sinister dramatic music have come out of what crucible could it have been formed in but this um intensely contested violent upheaval this this conflict between the state and grassroots community and particularly a, a conflict around kind of who controls uh, who gets to use physical space um so that was kind of another really key seed this light bulb moment that oh okay the stuff that i'm interested in actually has antecedents earlier in uk dance music has roots that stretch back further that this is not just the topics that i'm writing about are not just reflective of the contemporary moment but that actually they're one link in a much longer historical chain through dance music culture and also deeper into human history so that kind of broadened my horizons a bit and then the third part um, was during lockdown um, i wrote an article for the quietus uh, i had seen some chatter online about a group of djs called housekeeping um who had been getting kind of a decent number of kind of industry plaudits they, they'd held down a residency in ibiza they played at fabric they'd got some glowing reviews for their parties and their releases but then outside of the dance music press, I was seeing one of their members pilloried for buying up all of Brixton Market near to me and um, serving long-standing family-owned businesses with eviction orders. And that also kind of crystallised something for me in terms of 
where we were in the present moment, uh, an encapsulation of all the conflicts and frictions that the rest of my writing sort of sought to unpick or explore. Um, here were a group of people creating culture that trades on the experiences of marginalised and oppressed peoples that is historically rooted in those communities at the same time as, you know, their day jobs involve profiting off those communities and, and forcing them out of the areas that they've um, found uh, homes and business opportunities in. So that kind of disconnect for me and the fact that it wasn't being picked up really by anyone else, uh, certainly within kind of dance music, seemed to crystallise something for me. So I wrote an article about them that was ostensibly a review of their new record, but actually really kind of a, a, review, of the, a review of their entire existence and, and a structure that had allowed them or encouraged them to succeed. And that that did very well. Um, it wasn't quite at the level of cat person in terms of um, lockdown era, internet viral writing, but it, it did pretty well. It, I think, became the most read article The Quietest had published up, up to that point. And it led to an email from a literary agent saying, have you ever thought about writing a book? And I hadn't prior to that. But as soon as the idea was mentioned. I'm not someone who's blessed with an overabundance of self-confidence. Um, I'm really interested in things I'm interested in and I, I take them seriously, but I'm not someone who had assumed that anyone would be interested in a book by me or that I would have the capability or capacity to, to write one until someone with experience in the publishing industry came to me and said, I see a, a sort of through line in all the things you've written and worked on. Would you be interested in exploring and expanding that? So the book also, I mean, you've talked a lot about the social history just then. The book also contained, you know, descriptions of artists and their music and particularly, you know, the uh, the experience of going clubbing. We're not going to touch on any of that because I also <laughs> want to talk about mainly the sort of political and, and social aspects of it. But before we do, can you give us the potted history, the received wisdom shorthand version of the history of British dance music, that this book is in some ways not just sort of refuting, but sort of filling out and broadening that history. But what is the sort of the myth? Sure. So there's um, there's a really good quote that I like by an author called Casper Melville, who wrote another excellent book a year or two ago called It's a London Thing, which also does something similar to Party Lines in not not refuting or um, downplaying these sort of central myths, but building on them and expanding them. And, and he says, to call it a myth does not mean to suggest that it is untrue. And I think that the sort of accepted history of UK dance music is all accurate. It's just incomplete. It's not not the only story. So the, the positive history goes something along the lines of house music is created in Chicago in the early to mid 1980s, as is techno in Detroit, both coming out of very different but um, equally underground black music scenes in each city. It then is picked up by kind of DJs around the world. Uh, but it's only really when it's combined with ecstasy in Ibiza that what becomes Acid House uh, really kind of takes root. So um, four DJs from London, Danny Rampling, Paul Oakenfold, Johnny Walker and Nicky Holloway, go out to Ibiza in the summer of 1987 for Paul Oakenfold's birthday. I think it was either his 21st or his 22nd birthday party. And they hear a DJ called DJ Alfredo playing at Amnesia in Ibiza. They take ecstasy for the first time. They hear him playing synth pop records, uh, U2, mixed in with these new kind of house records from uh, Chicago and early techno from Detroit. And they have this sort of Damascene conversion. <laughs> they return to London 
they're all all four of the DJs in in this history are, are London based, which itself is is quite telling. They return to London like Moses coming down from the mount with the tablets, and then uh, bestow that gift on a grateful kind of public. They each found um, very influential nightclubs. Shoom is founded by Danny Rampling. Uh, Oakenfold founds um, Spectrum and Future. Holloway founds The Trip at the Astoria. And from there, Acid House kind of radiates out across the UK. It becomes a cultural phenomenon of orbital raves around the M25. It transforms the scene at the Hacienda. Ecstasy begins flooding into the UK alongside this music. The two are, are viewed in, in this sort of canonical history as, as essentially symbiotic, that you, you can't understand music without the drugs, and the drugs kind of come to prominence because of the music. It becomes a, a national and then international phenomenon. It, it spawns repeated police crackdowns from 1990s Bright Bill, which was the first legislative attempt to uh, uh, restrict unlicensed acid house parties enforced very aggressively by the police to the Criminal Justice Act in 1994, which bans unlicensed events featuring music characterised by the emission of a succession of repetitive beats, which is the first time that the statute book attempts to codify what dance music actually is. After that, you get kind of the rise of the super clubs and generally the history of dance music kind of tails off in those earliest histories written in the late 1990s, early 2000s. Dance music is essentially treated as something that happened, or at least was interesting, between 1987 and about 1994-1995 as a historical moment rather than um, an evolving culture. And yeah, so in terms of kind of some of the myths that I'm trying to explore with the book, I guess they're twofold. I'm trying to maybe deconstruct some of the myths around that specific time period. So moving away from some of the narratives that have become central to them and exploring couple of different perspectives, a couple of different angles on the same events. And then also uh, the second part of what I'm trying to do is expand that narrative outwards. So to look with the benefit of 30 years hindsight on that period at some of the antecedents, which maybe seemed quite distinct from dance music at the time, but actually with the benefit of hindsight have far more in common than maybe was acknowledged at the time that these events were happening. And then also to extend that narrative out to the present day to ask what happened next. I um, in my late 30s, I got into dance music in my teens, but even then that was still, you know, in the late 90s, I wasn't really going out properly until the early 2000s. So that kind of early so-called kind of golden age passed me by somewhat. But there are plenty of people who are still going out dancing like me, whose experiences don't connect back into that period that dance music has been sort of celebrated for, but whose experiences are just as valid, just as important and just as sociopolitically vital. So yeah, so it's kind of reassessing that period and then also broadening the focus to include other time periods as well i want to go right back and look at blues parties first of all i mean you've already mentioned that the seeds of dance music you know house and techno and garage music from new york as well all come out of black clubs and usually queer clubs as well as history of, of music is often white people taking on black music and basically stealing it. Blues parties going right back to like 1960s and 1970s, something that comes about, I guess, ironically, because black people are denied venues to put on music themselves. So tell us something about the sort of rise of those parties and, and what that adds to this history. If you trace back kind of the essential building blocks of UK dance music right throughout history, whether you're going out, raving, 
today or we're doing it in the 90s what are the essential kind of building blocks the infrastructure that it requires you basically need a dark space a late night space and you need a sound system and if you you know you need a pair of turntables an amplifier and a as big a stack of speakers as you can find and that model that archetype is unavoidably rooted certainly in the uk in black sound system culture the first kind of amplified sound systems creating kind of late night spaces for dance music as a kind of cultural social community resource it's really impossible to look past the post second world war post wind rush influx of afro-caribbean communities into the uk i'm over speaking to michael riley who's a researcher and academic and he actually he places it slightly earlier he says that actually the starting point for uk dance music is world war 2 and american gi's being stationed in and around british towns and cities and bringing american r&b records over with them jazz records as well and throwing kind of late night parties the first discotheques occurred also in, in world war 2 in occupied france when um there weren't musicians able to play um and so they would play records so that, um that's kind of the first time that you have late night music not provided by live musicians and certainly in the uk that's a culture that's always been connected to kind of black identity um i don't i don't go all the way back to world war 2 but i i start essentially with the arrival of the wind rush which i think is is kind of the starting point for so much of british post war social history but also specifically kind of musically there's that famous clip of um the clip so singer lord kitchener singing london is the place for me on the the gangplank of the wind rush a moment that's sort of loaded with historical resonance um this it's it's quite an awkward clip this sort of strange fit of a sort of incoming culture that is both you know british by dint of the colonial connections between the mother country and the colonies but also you know very distinct from the sort of white monoculture that um permeated britain at the time so that that kind of moment for me is really the the clearest kind of starting point clearest year zero when the first kind of jamaican sound system operators started coming over to the uk so two guys duke vin and count circle are generally acknowledged to have been the first people to to build kind of jamaican style sound systems in the uk what they very quickly found was that licensed venues late night venues were not interested there were color bars of varying levels of obviousness in effect across the uk from the 1940s onwards the race relations act in 1968 ostensibly outlawed that practice but in practice <laughs> those restrictions continued so uh when those first sound system operators came over and weren't able to book nights at local clubs weren't able to hire local venues for their own events they were essentially forced to take matters into their own hands to create their own spaces and so blues dances were all night parties held in either a domestic or a community space so sometimes they'd be in someone's house sometimes they'd be in a local church hall um sometimes they'd be in a youth center but they don't they would rarely have ever be in a formal licensed venue steve mcqueen's film from a couple of years ago lovers rock is is all about a night at a blues dance from kind of getting dressed up early in the evening through to kind of the music and the the mass of people together it's it's um it's a very sort of sensuous depiction of of being inside a party and then through to kind of the early hours the sun coming up and people kind of making their way home so yes it was it was a cornerstone of black british culture from the 1950s onwards and created a space in which people who didn't have a space to share their culture to 
commune with other people who shared their experiences and their outlook um, were able to to achieve some sense of kind of cultural connectedness or solidarity over the course of kind of the 70s and 80s as a younger generation um got into the music grew up <laughs> um, having been born in the uk blues dances sort of broadened in social and sonic outlook so rather than being just about kind of domestic spaces or sort of local grassroots spaces they started to broaden their ambitions and put on parties in warehouses they um moved beyond just playing reggae and dub to playing early hip-hop and electro and house music in many cases the kind of reggae and dub blues dances of the 1970s and 60s bled into the rare groove scene of the 1980s which was sort of the infrastructure of the blues dance but playing a wider selection of music generally centered around kind of obscure 60s and 70s soul and funk cuts a lot of the technical know-how went with them and a lot of the personnel too so people progressed from playing blues dances to playing warehouse parties uh sound systems like soul to soul were really really important in that time period as well kind of broadening the interests and um inspirations of people throwing these sorts of parties bringing in sort of a more fashion conscious crowd uh more of kind of an aesthetic identity around the parties and then so when acid house arrives in the uk in 1987 when ecstasy starts becoming more popular when djs start combining it with this kind of black electronic music from chicago and detroit the rare groove warehouse scene the infrastructure the technology of the blues dance are all very natural fits i guess one of the questions that i was interested in in party lines is you can absolutely detect the sonic inheritance certainly in kind of forms of dance music which were created in or originated from the uk you think of you think of a genre like jungle with its uh, liberal borrowing of bass lines and samples from reggae and dub records made 20 30 years earlier but for me what's interesting is how that functions kind of socially and, and politically it's not just that acid house borrowed the sounds of the blues dance but they also borrowed the operating model right? it's not a surprise that acid house started off in you know small basement clubs but very often very quickly took over kind of illicit unlicensed spaces following in the steps of, of blues dances and rare groove warehouse parties many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plush care plush care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey they can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great 
great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Ed Gillett and we're talking about his book, Party Lines. Ed, when you told us the potted history of British dance music, the idea of um, Acid House going through a sort of like outlaw stage and then being sort of subsumed into the mainstream and becoming like part of the cultural industry, the nighttime industry of cities. But again, thinking about more predominantly black music, I say, in um, inverted commas, this same sort of thing has not happened. If we think of like everything from jungle up to drill, there has been various sort of methods of demonizing this music, policing it. Can we talk a little bit about that, about the way that this different types of black dance music has been demonized? Sure. So, I mean, if you go all the way back to 1924, there's a painting called The Breakdown, which was uh, painted by a Scottish artist called John Souter. And it depicts a, um, a naked white woman sitting on the bust of a classical statue that has been smashed and kind of toppled to the ground, gazing rapturously at a fully dressed black man playing a saxophone. And it is a kind of visual embodiment of uh, the white establishment's fragilities around the arrival of jazz music. It caused a scandal when it was first exhibited. Um, it was forcibly removed from view at the Royal Academy by the Colonial Office, and the artist eventually um, burnt the painting. Black culture and, and Black-influenced culture has consistently, for you know a century or more, been a really visible trigger for white anxieties. Um, it has been a lightning rod for criticism of black masculinity in particular, but sort of endemic perceived black barbarity. That was the case before dance music becomes kind of a genre in itself. Blues parties were regularly the target of firebomb attacks generally by the National Front. But following kind of the arrival of dance music, those kind of um, fears and moral panics come embedded in, in the narrative around kind of black coded UK dance music genres. When Jungle came to prominence in the mid-90s, it was repeatedly associated with the contemporaneous arrival on British shores of crack cocaine from the US. The two were viewed as kind of almost synonymous in some cases. It's it's a really simple narrative that, you know, the music got darker and harder and faster. So clearly these these new, more sinister drugs must have been, you know, part of that process. In practice, the people I've spoken to who were there at the time said, yeah, you know, people were occasionally smoking crack in jungle raves, but very, very rarely. And, you know, it wasn't endemic within the culture. It wasn't really, it didn't really have any kind of role to play with, with the people that kind of made jungle and drum and bass what they were. Interestingly, there's this sort of a cycle, right? Today's moral panic becomes the entertainment of tomorrow. So 
Acid House was seen as this uniquely dangerous, corrupting force in the late 80s. You know, the sun would run scare stories about going to heaven and dancing to house music. You don't get those scare stories anymore, right? People don't obsess about house and techno clubs being dens of iniquity. They're understood as an integral part of the British leisure industry. Similarly, Jungle was was viewed as quasi-demonic in the mid-90s, but then by the late 1990s, it was you know, on the soundtrack to every PlayStation game and vaguely youth-oriented TV show in the UK. Ronnie Size won the Mercury Music Prize in 1997, which gave the genre this kind of gloss of respectability. The music changed from lots of kind of ragga and dub samples through to doing kind of air quotes here, intelligent drum and bass with more emphasis on kind of jazz and sort of highbrow Detroit techno. Uh, so that the genre kind of became gentrified to a certain extent. And that that neutralized it. You know, there were more prominent kind of white artists that were part of the genre as well, which I'm sure also helped. Um, and its place was taken up by Garage. So, you know, at the same time that you have drum and bass becoming a kind of fixture in <laughs> match of the day highlights reels or PlayStation snowboarding games, you have Garage and, you know, So Solid Crew, those kinds of artists becoming kind of the new folk devils and being blamed for there was one shooting in i think 2003 where a government minister specifically called out so solid crew by name in relation to the shooting despite the fact that they had nothing to do with it you know they took place in birmingham none of the members of the band were in birmingham at the time it was just sort of this this very nebulous sense that they were sort of inspiring a kind of moral decay amongst black british youth as garage became kind of legitimate pop currency in the early 2000s Attention switches to grime instead, which was rowdier and more raucous. And, and that becomes kind of the new scapegoat for all these social ills. There's a quote in the book from Conor McNicholas, who was editor of the NME at the time, who pointed out quite rightly that um, there were more so solid CDs being bought by white teenagers in Swindon than young black men in Hackney. So um, if the music itself was the cause of violence, you should have expected to see that violence erupting across society. If it wasn't, then clearly that meant the issue lay elsewhere. But the government have continued to clamp down on whatever the sort of moral panic flavour of the month is. It's gone from grime now to drill. And you see um, drill rappers hit with incredibly restrictive orders, limiting what they can say, where they can be, who they can associate with. I interviewed three young men in the book who were um, video producers uh, for drill artists. They're based in Nottingham. They had their homes raided at seven in the morning. They had their laptops seized solely because they made videos for drill artists. They are the loveliest, humblest young men you could ever hope to meet. They met doing a media studies course at university. They love music. They love video production. They started their own production company. They are essentially you know, young, aspiring businessmen, but they were hauled in and treated as, as you know, criminals simply because their clients include people who make music that the establishment views as, as potentially quite nebulously threatening. But yeah, that cycle is kind of, I mean, you look at, at drill successes over the last couple of years, it's becoming increasingly a fixture in the pop charts. You suspect that, you know, in a couple of years, a driller will win the Mercury Music Prize and something else will come up to replace it. At the same time, the treatment of these genres also reflects the kind of authoritarian creep of society. There's been a lot of work recently, which I discuss in the book, to limit 
the police's use of um, drill lyrics as evidence in criminal cases. So I think there's a really interesting question mark around the limits of black artistry, right? Nobody thinks Eric Clapton literally murdered his local sheriff in cold blood, but didn't kill his deputy. Nobody thinks Johnny Cash actually shot a man in Reno, right? It's understood that those are works of fiction, but the same respect and artistic leniency is not generally extended to young black men in this country. And there has been a spate of cases in which the police and the CPS have introduced lyrics from drill records as documentary evidence of violence that has been committed when in fact the boundaries of artistic expression and factual representation are much more fluid and much looser. But yeah, again, the music is kind of acting as a lightning rod for all of these fragilities and fears around perceived black degeneracy. And that's been a theme throughout dance music history. Ed, you talk in the book about going to a illegal rave you finally get the chance because you weren't old enough to go in the in the early 1990s uh, but you finally get the chance to go to an illegal rave during the pandemic and you talk in the book about the ways in which the pandemic in some ways brought back that sort of i guess rebel spirit to dance music but obviously at the same time had a you know had a massively detrimental effect on the nighttime industry and venues etc Tell us something about dance during the pandemic. Sure. So actually, I'm going to push back a little bit on the question. Um, I've always had the opportunity to go to illegal raves. One of the big myths around kind of illegal parties is that they ended in 1994 um, with the Criminal Justice Act, which ostensibly outlawed them and certainly uh, did away with the big sort of 10, 20, 30,000 person illegal parties like Carson Wharton Common in May of 1992, which was a, a real kind of catalyst for and lightning rod. Sorry, I keep using that term. Um, a real catalyst for and focal point for the Conservatives campaign around criminal justice reform. But if you look at um, newspaper records, almost as soon as the Criminal Justice Act is passed, you start getting stories talking about the return of illegal raves. Um, and that continues right the way through, right up to the pandemic. The pandemic is generally seen as kind of the return of unlicensed partying on the political agenda. But there's actually an article in The Guardian from February 2020, so the month before lockdown restrictions come in, talking about how illegal raving is back. And if you go back through the preceding years, it's been a regular feature of mainstream broadsheet journalism that every 18 months or so you get a new article about the return of illegal raving which sort of implies that it never actually went away. I guess what was different about the pandemic was that illegal raves were the only raves you could go to. There was no longer a legal option, which I guess aligns it more with those very early days of UK dance music. Um, one of the reasons, along with its kind of connection to the blues dance and roots in marginalised cultures, UK dance music ended up kind of occupying illegal and unlicensed spaces in its early years is because there were no legal alternatives. It's easy to forget that at the time that UK dance music first becomes a kind of popular phenomenon, pubs still closed in the afternoons and it was almost impossible to get a license to open any sort of venue past about two o'clock in the morning. So the pandemic kind of reintroduced those restrictions and more, you know, when you could only go to a pub if you were having a substantial meal or you had to be a minimum of six feet away from, from anyone not in your bubble. Although, interestingly, I'm not even sure that the idea that illegal raves kind of bloomed in popularity during lockdown is even that accurate either. A lot of the sort of historical free party groups, the people who had been continuing to throw free parties preceding the pandemic, not because it was their only option, but because 
that was kind of the model of dance music that spoke most powerfully to them actually reduced or ceased entirely their operations. Uh, there was a joint statement put out by illegal party promoters saying that they were taking a step back until um, people had been vaccinated and it was safe for them to continue kind of throwing events. So often the parties that replaced them were from less established promoters, more diffuse. Often, you know, they didn't necessarily even qualify as raves at all. There was one event quite early on in lockdown that attracted huge numbers of young people. I think it was sort of three or four thousand people just outside Manchester. And it was described across the press as a rave. And you look at the setup and it was two kind of very small, very tinny speakers. No one was really dancing. It was a social space, but I'm not sure it was necessarily a cultural space. And I imagine that there will be people there who love the music and would say differently. And these categories were always very difficult to pin down, absolutely. But I think rave became, during the pandemic, a little bit of a catch-all term for any kind of unlicensed gathering, regardless of whether or not it followed in that lineage of kind of late-night, illicit dancing to electronic music. The pandemic also kind of laid bare a lot of the... um, inequalities within society and within dance music because dance music is is in many ways a mirror to wider society um the sort of people throwing unlicensed parties often were people that felt they had no option either in cultural or in financial terms a lot of small operators went to the wall during the pandemic or immediately afterwards larger operators big promotion companies big festivals were able to call on kind of covid loans were far more likely to get access to the government's uh, cultural uh, recovery fund, which was a relief loan, uh, relief grant program set up during COVID to help cultural businesses and venues survive the pandemic. Um, Dance music was consistently at the back of the queue for any kind of support. In June of 2021, the government, at the same time, the government announced that 150,000 spectators would be allowed into the British Grand Prix and that Royal Ascot would be going ahead, but that every single late night venue and club in the country would have to remain closed for another month. Another kind of interesting angle, one of the things that I found out when researching the book, the production company founded by Cream, so one of the original kind of 90s super clubs, actually pivoted to running um, COVID test centres during the pandemic. So everyone involved in dance music was having to kind of find a way to make a buck. And if you didn't have access to kind of the economies of scale that might allow you to run a COVID testing site, if you were just a, you know, basement promoter, often kind of illegal parties were your only option. You mentioned earlier on the Criminal Justice Act as being absolutely central piece of law that affected dance music. It obviously affected society much wider than just the you know, the idea of the repetitive beats, even though that's the thing that has come to, you know, represent in the popular imagination. So tell us something more about what the Criminal Justice Act did. Sure. So for me, the Criminal Justice Act is kind of the the fulcrum around which the entirety of modern British social history revolves. It's, as you rightly say, often understood as an anti-rave act, which it is in part. But what it really was, was an attempt to bring the disorder and decadence of the 1980s and 1990s to heal. So it's an impulse that stretches back to Thatcher and her notions of the enemy within. This sense that the modern, decent, conservative governments of the day were locked in an existential struggle with um, sort of oppositional, defiant cultures, whether that's striking miners football hooligans, pirate radio operators, queer venues, or ravers. The public order clauses of the bill 
as it was then act as it is now. The public order clauses of the Criminal Justice Act cover ravers, but they also deal with squatters, environmental protesters, and hunt saboteurs, the latter of whom made up 90% of the prosecutions under those new powers in the first year that the Criminal Justice Act was in operation. So viewing it solely or specifically as an anti-rave bill is a little bit of a, um, a limiting view. And those public order clauses, which are generally a little bit better known, still only make up a minority of the act itself. There's all sorts of things that continue to have really critical resonance in, in modern British life. So the Criminal Justice Act uh, was the first law on statute books to codify the use and retention of DNA samples. It also massively expanded the ability of the police to stop and search people without suspicion. So those powers were used very heavily during the war on terror. They're used heavily today to deal with the contemporary moral panic of the moment around young black teenagers in inner cities uh, carrying knives. Those powers all stem from concern over being able to stop and disrupt ravers trying to get to illegal rave sites in 1994. It also, I think, more deeply reflects a kind of shifting balance of power within British society. So prior to 1994, you have laws restricting people's right of assembly. Um, you have laws specifically targeting kind of new travellers, nomadic communities, protesters. But 1994 is sort of the tipping point, which moves British society from one in which everything is permitted unless there is a specific law banning it, to one in which everything is prohibited, except those cases where it is, it is permitted in advance. You look at um, restrictions on protest around Westminster, restrictions on protest in general that have been brought in more recently, increasing pressures being brought to bear on new travellers, Gypsy Roma communities, uh, nomadic groups of all kinds and, and backgrounds. You even arguably look at the restrictions on claiming asylum, something that people are legally entitled to do, creating kind of structures in which it is illegal to do so unless you have been granted kind of special permission. It's a very narrow, very prescriptive, very um, authoritarian view of society. The idea that people should not have agency or opportunity to undertake behaviour that the mainstream views as disreputable or unattractive. And I think the Criminal Justice Act is really the first time that the balance shifts. If you look throughout British history... You know, and I'm not even just talking about the 20th century. You look back to the days of the Elizabethan players. There has always been a rich history of emergent, non-permitted cultural activity taking place in collective spaces, on commons, on um, Neolithic sites like Stonehenge, um, where permission is not necessarily sought. Collective agreement emerges organically that a space should be used for collective pleasure or noise. And now that, you know, I, th I think the Criminal Justice Act for me marks the point at which that thread in British social and cultural history is, if not entirely ended, then certainly kind of fundamentally disrupted and disjointed. Now it is very difficult to imagine that same sense of kind of emergent, unpredictable pleasure seeking, simply because there's such um, an edifice of legal powers available to prevent it happening. I don't think that's meant an end to those urges or the communal release of the dance floor. It's just meant that that culture has had to become smaller, less obvious, less less easy to disrupt, more diffuse in lots of ways. Which I think brings 
dance music back to its origins, the moments in UK dance music that are viewed as era-defining or revelatory very often did not happen in huge 10,000-person, 20,000-person events. They were small communities of people who knew each other, um, who shared interests, who shared passions, who shared life experiences, creating something kind of for themselves. And that's really where the book ends with um, a reassertion both of the marginalized identities that dance music was rooted in. I think one of the things that's been really positive and exciting about dance music and its interactions with politics and societies and communities over the last 10 or so years is a real reassertion of um, marginalized identities at the heart of dance music. You now have across the UK a really rich tapestry of nights run by and for black artists and dancers, queer communities. There's a really rich vein of South Asian UK dance music that's um, had recently a, a sort of a renewed acknowledgement by the mainstream. But what's interesting about what's happening now as well is that it's not just about mainstream acceptance and success. Dance music is also functioning as um, a building block for kind of wider community resources and solidarity, all of which um, links it back to the blues dance, links it back to the free party scene of the 1990s and provides kind of a template for going forward that's rooted in those marginalized identities and also in a theme of smallness. So of, of starting small, working with people you know, and of um, you know, a thousand tiny little gestures adding up to something really, really powerful rather than this kind of cycle of growth and boom and and co-option and then the emergence of something new. So yeah, um one of the other kind of myths that I was hoping to bust or trends that I was hoping to expand on, a lot of the other kind of book-length histories of dance music, possibly because they benefit from being written by people who were there at the time, tend to end with something of a, a downbeat tone of, of dance music as something that happened and was amazing and has now mutated and diffused in a way that renders it less exciting or less powerful or less urgent. For me, dance music is as culturally and politically vital now as it was in the 1990s, it may not be as centralised, but it still exerts you know, a really, really profound pull on how we interact with each other, how we understand ourselves as British people, as people living in community with each other. It's interesting, I started the book with an idea of trying to um, work out and unpick how politics, policing and profit had shaped UK dance music was actually become apparent in the writing of the book that the reverse is as true, if not more so, that actually this is not just a book about how politics has shaped dance music, but a book about how dance music has shaped the entirety of British society and politics over the last 50 years. So I've been talking to Ed Gillett. We've been talking about his book, Party Lines, Dance Music and the Making of Modern Britain, which is out now in the UK from Picador. Ed, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about it. Thanks. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.